Now, some of you who are baseball fans will remember the name of Wade Boggs. <clears throat> Boggs played for the Boston Red Sox, where he was uh, became a Hall of Fame third baseman. Eighteen years he played in the major leagues. Boggs was a tough guy, and um, he hated playing in Yankee Stadium. Now, that's maybe not so unusual for a Red Sox player, although he went on to play for the Yankees. But he hated playing in Yankee Stadium, not because of the Yankees team. They never gave him a lot of trouble, but because of one particular Yankees fan. That's right, one anti-I-hate-the-Red-Sox Yankees fan who always managed to show up any time the Red Sox were playing at Yankee Stadium. The guy had a box seat right next to the field. And when the Red Sox were in town, he would torment Wade Boggs by shouting out obscenities and insults to it. It's hard to imagine one fan getting under a great baseball player's skin like that, but this guy managed to do it. Well, one day, in the pregame warm-up, Wade Boggs was there doing his routine, and the guy was there doing his routine, yelling, you know, Boggs, you stink, and variations on that kind of a theme. <clears throat> well, Boggs decided that was it. He had had enough. And so he walked directly over to the man who was sitting in the stands, and he said, hey, fella, are you the guy who's always yelling at me? And the man said, yeah, it's me. What are you going to do about it? Wade Boggs took out a brand new baseball from his pocket, he autographed it, and he gave it to the man. And then he went back to the field. That angry, aggravating, annoying fan never yelled at Wade Boggs again. In fact, he became one of Wade Boggs' biggest fans at Yankee Stadium. If you've ever wondered about what the text means as we read it a moment ago and we'll read it again about heaping coals of fire on your enemies well maybe that's an example let me give you one more a church that I was familiar with when I was in seminary in the Philadelphia area they were very active in pro-life anti-abortion activity and I don't remember what generated the protest but there were some pro-abortion uh, anti-life people who were sick and tired of this particular, even it was a Presbyterian church, these people showing up and protesting at abortion clinics. And so the uh, uh, pro-abortion people showed up at that church one Sunday and started picketing outside the church. Uh, I don't think that the session of that church had ever had to deal with anything quite like that, but let me tell you what they did. They gathered together some of the deacons and a few of the elders and they typically would have like a time of refreshment in between Sunday school and worship. And so they took out two of these anti-life, pro-abortion protesters, little cups of juice and cookies, and served them for those who would take. Uh, within less than, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, the protest ended and they went away and they never came back. Heaping coals of fire on the heads of God's enemies. Here in Romans 12, Paul gives guidance to believers about what it looks like to live as members of citizens of God's government. Now, I want to suggest to you there are here for us today five things that will enable us to walk in wisdom and obedience to the rule of Christ. And I've said this many times, it bears repeating. 
You are going to walk according to the rule and the law of somebody. It is unavoidable. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, your obligation, your duty, your only option is to walk according to the rule of Christ and his law word. Here is the first point, and we see this in verse 1. Surrendering to God's mercies. Let me read that verse again from a different translation. So, brothers, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. You know, a few weeks ago, we considered the importance of renewal and reformation on a personal and a societal level. And here Paul gives us what is really the first step towards personal reformation, submitting ourselves to God's mercies. Paul urges us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Now that involves yielding our desires, our ambitions, even our very lives to the loving hands of our Heavenly Father. And as we do so, we discover that personal renewal begins in our minds, in our wills, enabling us to embrace the Lord's perfect will as given to us in Scripture. And that leads then to the second point, and that is the renewing of our minds. Now, he talks about this in verse 2. I'm going to read it from a different translation this time. He says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. A life, friends, that is reformed according to the law word of God involves the renewal, the transforming of our minds. You see, the world constantly bombards us with its worldview, its ideology, but God calls us to renew our thinking according to his word. By immersing ourselves in scripture and allowing it to shape our thoughts, we develop a godly perspective or godly worldview. Now, another way of saying this, and I think I don't know if he originated it, but Dr. Cornelius Van Til was fond of saying this, that we must begin to think God's thoughts after him. Whatever does that mean? It sounds good, but what would that look like? I've thought about how, how you could explain this to someone, and I've come up with this. You can tell me later if you think this makes sense. I think most of us here are familiar enough with modern technology, whether it be on our smartphones, our cell phones, on our computers, our laptops, our iPads, whatever it may be. That all of these devices, in order to function, they not only have to have battery power or be plugged in, but they have to have an operating system. Whenever you cut on your phone, whenever you boot up your computer, it comes up and it opens up uh, the, the program that allows you to run the whole thing. And it's either an Apple computer with a Mac operating system or a Windows computer, for the most part. So if I install a new computer software program on my computer, every time I start that thing up, it runs that program. So it is with us, friends. This is the analogy. Our problem has been that when we get up in the morning, we're not running God's program. No, no, too many of us are running the programs installed into our minds by the media and our popular culture. That's another reason that our, our society has largely crumbled. Christians think they're living according to God's word, but they are, in reality, running and operating from a totally different system. Now, the Christians in Paul's time, they faced the same challenge. That's why he's exhorting them this way. Oh, it wasn't dressed up in the same technology we have, 
but it's essentially the same thing. That is why he exhorts them, and indeed, based, I think, on the grammatical structure, as I understand the Greek here, he commands them, change the way you've been thinking. Let your minds become transformed by God's divine revelation in Scripture. Now here he points out that this is what empowers us to discern what is good and pleasing and perfect in God's sight. This is what will lead us away from conformity to the world, running its operating system in our minds, and toward a life of principled obedience to God. Third point, verses 3 through 5. We all have a place in the kingdom. He talks here in verse 4, we have many parts in one body, but the parts don't all have the same function. In the same way, though there are many of us, we are one body in Christ, and individually we belong to each other. So, if we are going to be functional members of Christ's kingdom, his government, we must understand there is a place in that government, in that kingdom, for all of God's people. Maybe think of it another way. This is essentially what Paul is saying. We must embrace humility. Paul reminds us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to recognize that each one of us have been given a measure of faith. As members of his kingdom, we each have unique talents and gifts, and all of us are equally valuable in the eyes of God. That realization obliges us to work together in unity as one body, and in so doing, we are honoring and serving one another in love. I want to give you just one, uh, what I think is a very memorable example. I don't remember where I was. It's been many years ago. I was in a a denominational meeting. I don't know if it was Presbytery or the General Synod. And there had been a debate on a particular motion that was on the floor. It had been a very intense debate. It might have even been a session meeting. I can't remember. But there were two main spokesmen for either side of whatever that issue was. And when the vote was taken, of course, one of them... the the main spokesman and the people who advocated that position, they lost. And it was like, uh, you know, there there were maybe uh, 10 people voting. I'm just making this up, but this is exactly what happened. And there were nine in favor and one against. And let me tell you what happened. That one negative vote, that man said, Mr. Moderator, I would like the clerk to enter into the records that I have officially changed my vote to I, to yes. He, he didn't, still didn't agree necessarily. He wished it had gone the other way. But in a spirit of unity and brotherhood, he changed his vote to go with the majority of his brothers on the session at the presbytery. And so doing, he was honoring and serving his brothers. Fourth point, and that is demonstrating genuine love. Now, he talks about this in verses 9 through 13, uh, again, reading from a slightly different translation. Um, Just hitting the highlights here. Love should be shown without pretending. Hate evil and hold on to what is good. Love each other like members of your family. Be the best at showing honor to each other. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Be on fire in the spirit as you serve the Lord. Be happy in your hope. Stand your ground when you're in trouble. Contribute to the needs of other people, of God's people. You see, for renewal and reformation to be authentic, it cannot be lacking in expressions of genuine love. And Paul is using here in the Greek text the terms agape and philadelphios. He is indicating that genuine regard for each other includes both a, a non-self-centered regard for others 
and the fraternal or brotherly love that we should have for our brothers and sisters in the church. And then he writes about these other qualities of love that should characterize our lives as believers. Sincerity, an abhorrence of evil, fervent devotion, service, hospitality, blessing those who persecute us. You see, when we authentically love one another, even in challenging and disagreeable circumstances, we bear witness to the power of Christ within us. And what is perhaps in our time most remarkable is that love becomes thereby a beacon of hope. This self-centered, nutty, crazy world out there is a world without hope. We see people doing all these bizarre things that most of us who've been alive longer than a few years would thought we would have never ever seen this even in the most bizarre, atheistic, crazy societies. And the people who, who promote these nonsensical living like they're animals and pretending to be cats and dogs or a guy pretending to be a girl and all the rest of it, they have no hope. They may not articulate it, but they are horribly hopeless people. And deep down inside, they know that. And so genuine Christ-centered hope draws others to the source of our renewal and reformation. And then finally, the fifth point, we are to overcome evil with good. In the ESV, those verses 17 to 21, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So then, the last thing that we must understand from these verses is that a renewed and reformed life in the kingdom calls us to overcome evil with good. Now, more literally... It means that we prevent evil from overcoming us by overwhelming evil with good. And that good, that, that, that word good means good according to God's law. In these two verses, 17 and 18, he talks about repaying no one evil for evil, uh, but give thought to what's honorable inside of all, live peaceably with others if possible. So in other words, the way we act and the way we think toward others should be godly. And we can only live that way if we recognize that that's our duty. The duty is ours, but the outcome, the results, are in the hands of God. Now, there are different ways that that looks in reality. And I want to be clear, when I say that we should behave toward others and think toward others in a godly way, some people are going to automatically translate that to mean, that means we are doormats, that we should bend over, you know, and take it no matter what it is, and being godly in the face of opposition or in the face of people who want to destroy us means, oh, we just please go ahead and kill us all. Now, that's not what it means. If you don't know what being godly means, you need to go back and study the Ten Commandments and the Shorter and Larger Catechism. On the other hand, within the church, within our Christian lives, I think I've got what I hope is a good example uh, in terms of what I just said, that we recognize that's our duty to behave toward others in this way, but the results are in God's hands. So here's the example. Maybe you're having some sort of uh, little problem doing something or getting something done, and um, you ask a Christian brother or sister for help. Could you, uh, could you help me with this? And they help you, and uh, 
you don't say thank you or you don't show appreciation to the point that the person who helped you thinks that you should have shown it. And so that person walks away, well, I'm never going to help them again. They didn't even say thank you. That's an example of how that person is not thinking godly in that situation. Maybe that person should have said thank you. But just because they didn't, that doesn't mean you don't show kindness and you leave the result in God's hands. That's a poor attempt, perhaps, at giving an example. Now, one commentator said this, and, and this, I think, maybe better summarizes what I'm saying, especially in the first part there. This is not a perspective of a pietistic retreat, but of confidence in God's government and God's victory. We are obligated to obey the law of God and to behave in a godly manner, The results are in his hands because he is king. In a world that is marred by hatred, revenge, and unrighteousness, we are called to respond differently than that. Paul encourages us not to repay evil for evil, but to bless those who persecute us. And by so doing, we allow the light of Christ's love to shine through us, ultimately triumphing over the darkness. Overcoming evil with good is not easy. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can respond with grace and forgiveness and demonstrate the way, the path of genuine peace. Now, having learned that, I think there's something of vital importance here. A a mistake that we must avoid, and that is this. See, some people, and I've sort of alluded to this already, I think, some people will turn this into a, a sappy, humanistic slogan, as if, It is love that conquers all things. All you need is love. You know, the the Beatles song. Uh, Think of, you know, all these sappy things coming from the 1960s and 70s about love this and love that all. Love conquers. And we still see it today, of course, with the transgendered and, and sodomite movement. As if love is some generic thing and has no boundaries to it or no definition to it. Yes, Paul does refer to a moral victory in that we overcome evil by stopping evil from leading us into its behavior and its actions. But listen, friends, it is not our love that conquers. No, it is Jehovah God who conquers. In more than one place in his law word, he declares, and in this case, Deuteronomy 32, 35, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when there, that is, God's enemy's foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Now, I want you to look again at Romans 12, 19, because I'm going to read this from the King James Version. Romans 12, 19 from the King James Version. He says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. Now, that translation has been confusing to some people because what it means to say, I think, is better rendered in the ESV. This phrase, rather give place unto wrath, uh, what does that mean? That's not a very understandable construction. The ESV puts it this way, leave it to the wrath of God. You don't avenge yourself, you leave that to the wrath of God. John Calvin, in his commentary, said that we give room or a place for God's wrath, and I quote, when with quiet minds we wait for the seasonable time of deliverance, praying at the same time that they who are now our adversaries may by repentance become our friends. I bet if I'd read that without attribution, no one would ever guess that John Calvin said that. Let me read that a part of that again. Praying uh, for the seasonable time of deliverance, praying at the same time that they who are now our adversaries may by repentance Become our friends. 
We win the victory over evil by preventing it from twisting us into a mind dominated by what has been done to us rather than by what the Lord requires of us. Commenting on these verses, Dr. Sproul told a story about his seminary days. And he said that when he was a senior in seminary at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, he served as a student pastor intern at a Hungarian reform church, a refugee church, in a steel town in western Pennsylvania. By the way, many of you may not be aware that the nation of Hungary has a law, a strong reformed Calvinistic church presence. And I think Viktor Orban, the current president of Hungary, who's hated, of course, by our left-wing western governments, is from a reformed church background. Anyway, Dr. Sproul is doing a seminary internship at this church, and he said the church had fewer than 100 people. And he said there was one lady in that congregation who was somewhat vexing, as he put it. And he said, I once made a remark that she found very, very offensive. And he said afterward, she would come to church on Sunday mornings and would noticeably look out the window next to where she was seating during Sproul's sermon so that everybody could see she was ignoring him and was full of disdain for him. And he said, that created a real problem for me. And so he said he went twice and apologized for his offensive remark. And on one, a second occasion, he was in tears apologizing, asking her forgiveness. Now he said as far as, as part of his seminary training, he was required to meet on a regular basis with an appointed mentor. And he said in his case, it was an 85-year-old retired missionary who had spent many years in China. And he said he and his wife, this missionary, had been in concentration camps for five years. And Dr. Sproul said that he went to that missionary mentor in humility and gave him the report about the trouble he was having with that unforgiving woman. And he told me, he said, it was a mistake to say what you said that offended her. But he said, your bigger mistake was apologizing for it twice. He said, once you apologized sincerely and asked her forgiveness, the ball was placed in her court. Her refusal to give and forgive is far worse than the offense you caused in the first place. He said, don't keep pursuing it. The coals of fire are on her head. My friends, as we conclude, let's remember that this reformation and renewing of our minds is not just this one bang, it's done thing. It's a process. It, it's an ongoing thing. What Paul directs us to here is that we can live lives that reflect the transforming power of Christ. Dr. R.J. Rustuni said, and I quote him, Paul tells us that morality is what God says it is. The government of all things is in the hands of the triune God, not ours. He said, because morality, moral law, are expressions of God's righteousness or justice, we cannot give to morality a totalitarian power. Christian morality is the expression of our life in Christ, not our attempt to play God, end quote. And so for us, let what Paul wrote serve as a roadmap for our walk with Christ. By his Spirit, let his word guide us toward a life that brings glory to our Heavenly Father. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live out those truths daily so that the world will be transformed and conformed to new life in Christ Jesus. Let us pray.